Lamentations 3, verses 17 to 33. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Good morning, everybody. I hope you can uh, grab your Bible and flip yourself to the middle of Jeremiah. We didn't quite finish him last week. If you remember, as you're turning there, we'll just review a little of, of the first part of the book that we looked at last week. Hopefully you were here. Uh, Jeremiah served during the last five kings of Judah and beyond those five kings as well. He predicted and then he lived through that Babylonian invasion and the deportation, the people being taken out of the land and the, the great destruction they brought upon Jerusalem and Judah. Now, in large part, Jeremiah's message is to and about Judah, um, the call to repent, to turn to God, even at this late hour in Judah, Judah's existence. Um, there's also some narrative accounts concerning himself and others. We'll see some of those today as well. And we worked our way through chapter 35 last time. We also noticed in the first part of the book that Jeremiah was called for a purpose. That purpose, generally speaking, was to proclaim God's truth in a troubled time. And interestingly enough, part of the purpose was that they would reject the message. They would reject the messenger as well. And we've already seen Jeremiah's life has been threatened. And Babylon has now invaded Judah twice. Both times they've hauled off captives, they've replaced the king, they've other, otherwise dominated the land. In chapter 31, uh, an interesting one to, to study, we spent just a little bit of time there, but God promises here to make a new covenant in light of their history and what Babylon's doing. God promises to make a new covenant. It's a prophecy, it's something yet future for Israel it has to do with putting truth in their hearts, and they will all be saved. They will all turn to God, is what the passage says there in 31. But throughout all this, Jeremiah presents a tender side as a prophet. His personality comes through, as well as the character of God in the tenderness, as he grieves over their sin and over the loss of his people. We spent a little time on verse 5 of chapter 1. 
where God attests to forming Jeremiah in the womb. He sets him apart before he was born, even, it says. And we notice there, too, that God forms each one of us, doesn't he? We hold to the belief that life begins at conception. God-given, God-designed life. Each one of you, beyond being formed, have purpose. Not only are you invaluable but, and nothing can replace you, but you have purpose given to you by God. Psalm 139, among other things, says, Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book, and it says, And they were planned before a single one of them came to be. Came to be. So you and I have purpose unique to you. God designed that purpose just for you. Well, I hope you found your way to Jeremiah chapter 36. Let's ask the Lord as we look at our Bibles today to be with us and, and, and teach us. God, thank you that you have given us your word. It's powerful. We believe that it's living and active and that it's here to teach us as well as millions and millions of Christians across the globe and maybe millions to come. Thank you for Jeremiah and the prophecy that he's given for the, the events, for Jeremiah's faithfulness in living his life according to your calling. It wasn't easy, it wasn't peaceful, but it was following your, your way in obedience. I pray, God, that you would just reveal your truth to us as we look at Jeremiah and his writings and lamentation, lamentations as well this morning. Thank you for the chance to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's remember before we look directly at, at chapter 36 and beyond that the prophets served during the time of Israel's dynasty. I know I've said that before, but we'll remind ourselves. We, we'll also see a few prophets that come after the dynasty. That begins with Jeremiah. There's 17 books of prophecy in your Bible in the Old Testament. That's a lot of material four of them being major, 13 being minor, depending on how you split it up. But, you know, we often don't take a lot of time in the prophets. Maybe there's reasons for that. But um, hopefully as we fly over these prophets, it will help understand not only their message, but the timeline, where they fell in history. And that will give you a little better um, future idea as you read your scripture and study. And I hope it inspires you to dig a little deeper. There's so many passages that you can dig deeper in and God can bless you through his word. Before we get into Jeremiah then, I want to look at the events, a little bit of a timeline of judgment that's taking place by the hand of God. So you remember that Babylon has become the world power at this juncture during Jeremiah's prophecy. They've gained domination over the north Assyria and over Egypt in the south. You can see on this map there, they're over here in the east, as a, as a headquarters anyway, Babylon. And that, by the way, is modern day Iraq, where they were located at. Babylon invades Judah and Jerusalem three times. The first one was in 605 BC. And this is where they were telling Judah that we're now, we're now your Lord. They not only, they were, they were dominant over Judah as well as other places, but they made clear that 
they, Judah answered to them, not Assyria, not Egypt. And there's, you can see Carchemish in the north, that, that's where Egypt has just been defeated in the same year by Babylon. And it was probably during this invasion, 605, that Daniel and his three friends were taken captive, among many others. So if you're still take, keeping track of that timeline, we haven't put a date on there for a long time, but um, if you've got that somewhere, pull that out. And I, 605 will be the next date on your timeline. That's an important date, the first invasion as well as Daniel and three friends being hauled off. The second invasion was in 597. Only a few years later, Babylon again came against Jerusalem, determined to squash rebellion. That's what they're after. And 2 Kings 24, starting in verse 10, says this about this second invasion. Listen to this. At that time, the servants of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched up to Jerusalem and the city came under siege. To, skipping to verse 12, King Jehoiachin of Judah surrendered to the king of Babylon. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He also carried off from there all the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king's palace. And he cut into pieces all the gold articles that King Solomon of Israel had made for the Lord's sanctuary, just as the Lord had predicted. He deported all Jerusalem and all the commanders and all the best soldiers, 10,000 captives, including all the craftsmen and metalsmiths. Except for the poorest of the people in the land, no one remained. Pretty dire situation. Well, the third and final invasion was in 586 B.C., and if you've got your timeline, this is the next date. This is an important date. In fact, if you're remembering dates, this would be one of a few that would be a good one to remember. This is, again, due to Judah's rebellion against Babylon, their authority, and Jeremiah told them not to do it, but they did it anyway, and... In 586, Babylon moved in. We see, we see in 39 of Jeremiah, chapter 39, as well as the last chapter, 52, an account of this invasion. Um, this, it's also recorded in 2 Kings 25. You can read that later if you want. And apparently Jeremiah witnessed much of it or most of it. This time Babylon came in. They burned the king's palace. They burned the Lord's temple. This was David's palace and Solomon's temple. They burned all the great houses of Jerusalem. They took all the remaining gold and silver of the temple as well as most other articles of worship. The army tore down the walls of the city and took almost all the remaining people captive, again, only leaving the very poorest scattered throughout the land to farm it. They tracked down the king as he attempted to escape. They put out his eyes and they imprisoned him. This is a, a significant date in history for Judah, 586. If you think about this in light of the history that we've been looking at now for months and months in our flyover, it's a big blow. Hundreds of years of God's working with his people. You know, deliverance from Egypt, the tabernacle, the priests, the Mosaic covenant, the kings, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the land allotments, all of this that's going on, the tribes, the cities, but God doesn't care so much about those things as he does about a humble heart. A heart that's turned toward him, that desires him. So Babylon here is God's spanking spoon, if you will. They're a wicked nation themselves, but God is using them as a disciplinary arm against Judah. God is loving God is just. So now turn to chapter 36 of Jeremiah. 
there's quite a bit of narrative here, story form, up through chapter 45. And in 36, Jeremiah dictates to his helper, Baruch. We mentioned him last week, his scribe or amanuensis. Baruch wrote down a message from the Lord to the people and the leadership. He records it and then he reads it to all the people. Apparently, this message had to do with judgment and a plan to turn away. Again, turn, turn from evil. But the king got a hold of it. He didn't like it. And he destroyed the scroll by cutting it up and burning it in his warming fire. He was so angry, he wanted to get his hands on Jeremiah and Baruch. But it says there in 36 that the Lord had hid them. God's message will continue, even through rebellion. And, and you see that Jer there Baruch recorded the message again on a new scroll afterwards. In 37, Jeremiah is jailed and you can probably guess why, the nature of his message. Nobody liked it. It was God's message, right? Remember, God warned him in the beginning, your message will be rejected and you will be rejected. So here they beat him, they put him in jail. Then in chapter 38, they drop him into a cistern. There wasn't much water in the cistern, but because of the water that had been in the cistern, there was silt and mud in the bottom and... That's where Jeremiah sank in his muddy prison. The leaders, the spiritual leaders, the political leaders probably intended to kill him, either by starvation or, in his case, hypothermia in his dank prison hole. Well, you can read the whole thing there later, but he ends up rescued from the pit, and then he has a private chat with the king, King Zedekiah. This is indeed the last hour, chapter 38. The 11th hour, the king asks some questions. Jeremiah begs the king to surrender to the Babylonians. In doing so, he will save his, himself and others. Even now, I think we're seeing mercy, God's mercy. But true to form, that's not an option for the king to listen to God or to listen to God's prophet, and he refuses. So the very next chapter, chapter 39, at least in the way that it's set up here in the book of Jeremiah, Jerusalem falls. Zedekiah, the king, due to his stubbornness and refusal to listen to good advice and to turn to God, was captured. He tried to escape. They captured him. And they put his sons to death in front of his eyes. And then they put his eyes out. And he was hauled off to Babylon for the rest of his life. As for Jeremiah, you can see in chapter 40, that Babylon allowed him to be free to live in Judah amongst those few who were left in the land. Now, that would be a nice peaceful end for Jeremiah's life, but it's not the end. He continues to bring God's message, and in chapter 42, he warns the remnant, those poor people left in the land, remember. He says, don't run to Egypt for safety. They wanted to, but God said not to. And again, they rejected his message. In 43, they end up going anyway. And of course, they take Jeremiah with them. As he's in Egypt, at least in large part, 46, chapter 46, almost all the way through chapter 51, Jeremiah foretells judgment on surrounding nations. This is a common practice for the prophets. We've seen this before, right? Egypt, Philistia, Moab, others are mentioned. And... 
remember this may not entirely be chronological in the writing here, but Babylon is included in these other nations and the judgment upon them actually very included. They, they take up most of chapters 50 and 51. We should notice Babylon's not getting away with their evil. Just as Judah didn't get away with their evil, Babylon will not get away with evil either. If you remember last week, at, at, at one point, Jeremiah asked the question, and sometimes we ask the same question, why do the wicked prevail? Well, they don't, at least long term. The answer is they don't. Listen to uh, chapter 51, verse 24. You can, you can view it there. 51.24 says, But I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea, that's the land of Babylon, for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. God is patient. God is slow to wrath. But evil has inevitable judgment. Evil nations, evil people, their judgment's coming. I think the only reason you and I will be exempt from said judgment is based upon the blood of Christ. Chapter 52, final chapter. There's a testimony of fulfillment, sort of an epilogue, a capstone to Jeremiah's long ministry and predictions, and those were fulfilled at the hand of God. Some of this we saw in 39 already, in chapter 39, it's, it's repeated here. Remember, it's not all chronological, but it, it, it recounts the final and devastating blow in 586 B.C., Babylon against Jerusalem, destroying the city of God. It's an end to an era, but it's not the end. We're going to leave that storyline right there, but... You can see Lamentations is next, and Jeremiah authored Lamentations. So now he here in Lamentations is mourning for the city, Jerusalem that has been taken over and decimated. It's called the Lamentations or the Wailings of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has witnessed, if you will, the death of a nation, although it's not permanent, but you might imagine Jeremiah strolling through the littered, empty streets of his city, God's city, gazing upon the pile of rubble that used to be the beautiful temple, picking his way around Jerusalem through the fallen and destroyed walls. Perhaps he finally sits on nearby Mount Zion and looks across at the smoking remains and weeps. And he doesn't just weep because he has lost personal comforts or friends or belongings. He weeps because Judah, his people, have lost what they might have been, what they might have had in relationship with God. He weeps because the land does not represent God like it was meant to. He weeps because of God's judgment, a faithful judgment. So if you want to put a date to the book of Lamentations, 586 is pretty close. That, again, is the same date that Babylon wiped out Jerusalem in finality. Lamentations has five dirges, you could say, split up 
in the five chapters that you see. You have a focus on the city in chapter one, chapter two shifts, and God is speaking, answering the city's cry, perhaps. Chapter three, the prophet speaks. Chapter four, possessions and people give their perspective. And in chapter five, through Jeremiah, the voice of the captives speak. There's some interesting structure to this book. We won't go into it hardly, but the composition, except for chapter five, all the first four chapters were originally written in acrostic fashion with the Hebrew alphabet. So 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, each, each verse now you have as verses, but each segment started with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, except for chapter three, where it's split into three verses per letter, 66 verses. We should at least, if we, read, if we read Lamentations, we should read it with emotion and reflection upon the, the devastating and momentous event of the capture and deportation of God's people and the disruption between God's people and himself in this event. If you put music to it, it's going to be in the minor key. You know, Solomon, if you remember in some of his writings, he talks about the value there is in the house of mourning. I don't know about you, I don't prefer to spend much time there, but there is value there. There's good in letting these words of lamentation sink in, letting them teach us and remind us of reality. You know, death, even destruction, that is reality. Even now, Israel faces the reality of death and destruction, wickedness as Hamas comes against them and we continue to pray for Israel. In large part, in chapter 1, Jeremiah grieves as he observes the defeated city, sometimes from the perspective of Jerusalem herself, the city speaks, if you will, why is there destruction? I think you know the answer to that, right? Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. Jerusalem has sinned grievously, therefore she has become an object of scorn. All who honored her now despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. That's what's behind it, right? If you remember Jesus in Matthew 23, verse 37, laments over the city of Jerusalem as well, in like manner that we see Jeremiah doing. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it says, this is Jesus speaking, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So not only did they reject Jeremiah and his message, not that many years later, they rejected Jesus as Messiah, as prophet. At least so far. They're an obstinate people. Chapter 2, the second dirge, depicts the anger of God at their sin. In fact, God takes responsibility here. It's his wrath that has brought about this invasion and destruction of what Jeremiah is viewing. You know, Babylon did the dirty deed, right? But they're not mentioned here. God is the force behind them. Or behind, yeah, behind Babylon. Remember, he lifts up. He deposes all nations. God's behind everything, planning it all, carrying it all out. In chapter 3, and this is the longest chapter, the prophet Jeremiah shares his affliction. 
And he, he's despondent concerning Jerusalem. We got a flavor of that with what Andrew read us. I think if you were in his spot, you might feel a little bit of the same thing. I mean, can you blame the, the guy? Up through verse 18, he is emotional in his grief and transparent in his pain. Kind of reminds me of David in the Psalms, at least some of the Psalms. And, and like David, beginning in verse 19, Jeremiah reminds himself of the goodness of God and God's trustworthiness. This is the high point of the book, these few verses right here. Chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We sing a lot of songs based on that phrase, right? Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah goes on from here in his testimony. There's more praise and there's interesting theology about God that arises in the rest of this chapter as you look at the judgment on his people. Chapter 4, again, a dirge in this wretched time in Jeremiah's life. You could say this is from the perspective of the possessions as well as the people who are left in the land. Just an interesting poetic comparison that shows up. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. It says, The punishment of my dear people is greater than that of Sodom which was overthrown in an instant without a hand laid on it. You remember Sodom, don't you? The punishment, the fate of Jerusalem is not like Sodom. It's drawn out. It's painful. Sodom was almost instantaneous. I'll leave that to you to consider. Chapter 5 is a prayer, you might say, from the perspective of the captives. It's, it's through Jeremiah, the poet, the prophet. And on behalf of them, I think, really kind of portrays them as a pitiful people. It appears as you read this chapter that Israel has sunk to the bottom of the barrel. They have lost all dignity and most freedoms. Look at 5.16. The crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. But the very last verse in the book, it ends with a note of faith, looking to God who doesn't fail. Verse 22 you, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Based upon this, the prophet asks on behalf of the nation to be restored, renewed. There is a possibility of hope, and he looks for it. I think we're, as we study this, getting behind in my slides, as we study this, um, this time of... Jeremiah and of the destruction of Israel, we're seeing here the discipline of the Lord, right? So I want to ask three questions, and we don't have time to answer them very exhaustively, but this will get us started. I just want to ask these about the discipline of the Lord. Who does the Lord's discipline fall on? How does the Lord discipline? And why does the Lord discipline? The first question, who does the Lord's discipline fall on? Proverbs 3.12 3, says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Hebrews, New Testament, chapter 12, repeats that phrase, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. 
So there's the simple answer. We want to be in that group, don't we? I think we are in that group. The one he loves receives his discipline. You know, you saying that the Lord's discipline falls on us, it's probably not the best way to say that. It's not like hail and fire and brimstone that falls upon somebody. You receive, we receive the discipline of the Lord as a blessing, actually. Might not feel like it at the time, but that's what it is. So, secondly, how does the Lord discipline? A few years back, I was trying to work through some difficulties in my life that were out of my control. And as I complained to a friend of mine, he asked me, what do you think God's discipline looks like? That kind of made me think. And I, I'm still thinking. I've got a lot to learn. But what does it look like? What do you think it looks like? We don't have time for all of your answers, but process that. What does the discipline of the Lord look like? Here's a couple of verses. Hebrews 12 again, verse 11 says, No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Proverbs 20, Lashes and wounds purge away evil and beatings cleanse the innermost parts. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7. Now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you hear those descriptors? The discipline of the Lord often looks like hardship. Trials, pressures in life, they hurt, don't they? It's like the boy whose father said to him before he gave him a whipping, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And the boy said, yeah, dad, but not in the same place. <laughs> we all know how that goes. Well, C.S. Lewis, on this concept, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. A.W. Tozer, it is doubtful if God can bless a man greatly without hurting him deeply. I don't know if you've thought much along these lines. We see it here with Judah. I think we see it in our own lives, don't we? So in the context of your personal life, how does the Lord discipline you? Why does the Lord discipline us? Why would he do that? The one he loves. In short, someone has said God gives hurts for the sake of our hearts. The hurts are to turn our hearts to him. The hurts that you face, the difficult difficulties, the trials, they're worth the result. God loves us and has a purpose for that hardship to mature us, to grow us, to change us, to move us toward holiness. As an old man looking back on his life, the late Malcolm Mugridge observed this. 
He says, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, everything I have learned, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. If it were ever to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endured. It's like a man I'll call Fred. He was conversing with a visitor to his place, a man who posited that children should receive no formal discipline and instruction. They should rather be free to choose their own way to run in that direction that seemed natural to them. Fred didn't disagree, but he later invited the man into his rather unkempt garden. You call this a garden, the visitor exclaimed. There's nothing but weeds here. The vines and trees are taking over. They haven't been pruned in years. Well, you see, Fred replied, I, I didn't wish to infringe upon the liberty of the garden in any way. I was just giving the garden a chance to express itself and choose its own path and its own production. The point is, I think, my friends, that we are in need of God's discipline. By nature, we are prideful. We are obstinate, just like Israel. But the hurts are there to help us. C.S. Lewis again said, Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Sometimes I think we confuse the concepts of discipline and punishment. The word discipline there in Hebrews 12 that I've quoted a couple times, read it for yourself later. There's a whole passage on the Lord's discipline. The word is peduo, and depending upon the context, it means things like to instruct, to train, give guidance, to correct. You see it in the context of training children. It includes the idea of correction for wrongdoing. As Proverbs 13, for example, the one who, who will not use the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Correction for wrongdoing. The point of discipline then is to train. It's to mature. We need to think of discipline as a positive thing, not a negative you might roll your eyes when grandma says, well, it's a blessing in disguise, but she's right. This is different than punishment. Okay, we don't have time to get into that, but discipline is different than punishment. So when it comes to our response, I, I don't, maybe I speak for myself. You can decide if you agree with me or not, but we like our comforts. We, we complain. We like to have control. We like to give the cold shoulder. That is, we like to ignore facing change and facing growth. It's hard to face our imperfections and admit them and deal with them. Just like Israel. So I think we first need to accept God's discipline. And second, we need to learn to discipline ourselves. Here's where humility is important. If we, don't, if we, if we are disciplining, our, disciplining ourselves, if we're seeking maturity, 
we're seeking God and seeking his way, he doesn't have to discipline as much. So what then, I ask you, is your response to God's discipline as a loving father in your life? He doesn't wish to torment you. That's not his purpose at all. He wants your heart. So just briefly, let me challenge you by these three points. Turn to him by faith. In other words, God, you have things for me to learn here, and I want to learn them. And with submission, in other words, God, I'll let you do what is best in my life. And patience. In other words, God, I'll stay right here and wait on you. It's okay to get help and get support from those around you. Absolutely, we need that. And know that he is faithfully loving you. That's what he is after. I'll just remind you when, when we're done today, if you want prayer and support for discipline or other reasons, be some elders up here to pray with you. Let's, let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you. It's uh, <clears throat> maybe not the first natural course for us to say thank you for discipline, but we do. We know even though we don't feel it all the time, we know that you discipline us because you love us. That's so clear in the scripture and, and in our realities. We can look back and say, wow, if it wasn't for that pain, I wouldn't be here. God, give us strength to submit to you in faith and patience. I pray for each one. Only you know exactly what we're all going through and what all is happening in our lives. Thank you that you love us so much that you won't give us more than we can handle. Thank you for our friends and our family here in our church that can help us and support us. Let us be loving toward one another, bearing burdens. And again, thank you, God, for not letting us just do our own thing. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.